0: Hello, my geeslings. it is Mother Goose here, Robinson Earhart, with the introduction to episode 34, currently wrangling my cat, Pins, who is insisting on messing with the microphone and the cable. This episode was with C.T. Wynn, who's a professor in the philosophy department at the University of Utah. T visited Stanford a couple of months ago and gave a really great lecture on trust and afterward i went out to dinner with him along with another with a with a bunch of other stanford people and it was just great particularly hearing him talk about the food because he used to be a food writer before he be, became a professional philosopher or while he was in grad school at ucla but in this conversation we mainly talked about his books his book games agency as art and we talked about autonomy and aesthetics where pop media got games wrong. Uh, We talked about various philosophical definitions of games, the distinction between arts of action and arts of objects. We talked about porn and why we call things porn like food porn or moral outrage porn or impeachment porn was something somebody talked about with him recently. And we talked about his favorite games. We talked about distinguishing good and bad games. Uh, we talked about how to select experts to trust when we're not in an epistemic position to judge really how reliable they are on the material in question. But so it was a wide ranging conversation. It was great. Uh T's a wonderful speaker, and I hope you really enjoy the episode. Been making pauses are okay uh but yeah so i can also just i mean i'm gonna start recording now but i can cut yeah. in anytime so awesome. you started your career as a food writer and i got to hear a bit about how you think about food when we uh, went to dinner when you visited stanford but i really i really do hope to talk a bit more about the food but i'm curious about how you went from professional food writer to professional philosopher
1: I actually didn't, It they didn't happen in sequence. I actually got the food writing gig while I was in philosophy graduate school. Oh, because okay. Because I was at UCLA for graduate school. And um, as a basically sidebar, it wasn't even a gig. I was just, there was this, old, before Yelp, there was this forum called Chowhound. And I used to yeah. post on it, like long kind of often like drunken rants about food and argue with people about good restaurants. And then uh, the LA team's food times food editor offered me a job because my posts were apparently good. And so I did them both for a while, which is why it took me so long to get through grad school.
0: That's a dream. they, They were happening at the same time. Okay. And did your initial, well, so clearly you were really into food if you were writing these spirited posts, but did your, initial philosophical work? Or? I mean, the questions that you're writing about? Also, like involve food in some way? Like I'm thinking maybe just aesthetically, or uh, as qualia? Or did you just go straight into your work in games, basically?
1: I think the so I think at the time, in graduate school, what I was doing with food and what I was doing philosophically, were basically, Basically unrelated. I can okay. see vaguely these kind of like subtle connections, but um, but I wasn't really working on aesthetics back then. I was doing very kind of like traditional meta ethics and um, social uh, and epistemology. I think there is something that I've that, that's been driving a lot of my interest for a long time that was really subterranean back there. And there there are these questions about the subjectivity of taste and the felt reality of, I mean, on the one hand, it seems really easy to have a kind of like subjectivist account of taste of like aesthetic judgment. And on the other, like, I think when you wanna say things like, look, McDonald's is not as good as a carefully prepared, you know, grandparents do like, and that I think the kind of interests I've had in value theory and metaethics have always kind of revolved from these kind of like deep lasting questions about what the hell is going on with the relative objectivity or subjectivity of aesthetic judgment. But that wasn't articulated yet way back then. Lately, I think the game stuff and the food stuff are actually really close. Um, I think a lot of that closeness has to do with trying to find the aesthetic value of things that aren't kind of conventional fixed art objects. I think both games and food for me, are these driving, uh, examples where so much of what is good is in these kind of emergent social interactions or emergent physical interactions or all these things that we do with and around it that I think make it harder to classify in traditional art forms. But yeah, a lot of, a lot of the stuff in aesthetics I've done has like a games example and a food example, Because they're both kind of, like, paradigm-breaking if you're used to this, like, painting
0: and novel, like, theory of art. I can see how, um, well, talking about taste is going to lead us directly into games. I'd actually wanted to go straight to games, but now I'm thinking we should talk about your paper, Autonomy and Aesthetic Engagement. Because you talk about... um, like you want to say the McDonald's burger is not as good as the stew like there's some objective answer out there and the puzzle that you posed in your paper and which i think you solve uh with a game like analogy is that we value autonomy when looking at art and even though there may be like an objective answer about whether or not this painting is beautiful or uh this food is good we're not just satisfied by reading A review we kind of want to come to that judgment ourselves, even if it's not um, right in a sense so maybe you can explain that that puzzle a little better and how you treated it with by thinking of this as a sort of game yeah
1: so um the this is there's a there's a puzzle in aesthetics it's been around for a while and some people think it's really boring i've been always weirdly fascinated by it and it's the puzzle of why we don't trust experts in the aesthetic realm and it's it seems it seems incredibly different from the empirical realm right like i trust my doctor they tell me what to take i trust my mechanic they t- and like i'm literally trusting my life to them right when my mechanic says i need to do this to fix your brakes my life is in their hands i don't understand how cars work i just trust them and we seem weirdly unwilling to trust in the art world and it, you would think that like i mean the stakes are so low actually yeah, part yeah. of the explanation is to be it's exactly because the stakes are lo- so low that we're able to um we're able to not trust like we have to trust when we actually want to get things right like with our cars and our medicine hmm. and the art world is a little bit more free it's exactly the lower stakes that lets us be autonomous sorry i'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit so the so A lot of people have tried to explain this asymmetry in terms of like what aesthetic properties are like there's some kind of like subjective property that you need to experience for yourself um but that doesn't square easily for those of us that have like strong intuitions of aesthetic cognitivism right like strong intuitions that like look there are better and worse aesthetic judgments you can i mean it's funny like uh I think most people in aesthetics are on the side of, no, no, you can have better and worse, more and less valid aesthetic judgments. And most people mm-hmm. outside of aesthetics are like, no, it's all subjective. But I think you, you can get there pretty quickly. It's like, look, you have listened to rap for 20 years of your life. You have a judgment about the Cardi B album. You think it's I amazing. know Cardi I, B is a favorite
0: yeah,
1: of yours. Cardi B is so good. And I like, imagine I have like, never listened to anything in any rap in my life. And I come in convinced that like Hamilton is the greatest rap album of all time. Having listened to it as like my second rap album. Right. I think there's a, this is, this is, this is a point from Hume, right? There's a deep difference between someone that has deep experience in a realm and not. Anyway. So for those of us that think, right, there's something right there. You can adjust your judgments. You can see more or less of the work. Your judgments can be responsive to details of the work it's really hard to explain exactly why you wouldn't just trust an expert, right? Like, I don't know much about medicine. I should just trust a doctor. I don't know much about jazz. You know a lot about jazz. I should just trust you, right? And the answer, I the, the re, uh, my solution to this, my suggestion is that the reason for this asymmetry is not because aesthetic properties are some metaphysically weird thing but because uh, aesthetic appreciation is a game, that we do it to be engaged in the process. And that's independent from whether there is a right or wrong answer. So for example, I think there's a right answer to a crossword puzzle, right? There are many puzzles where there's a single objectively correct answer. It's not subjective, whether or not your random words fit the crossword puzzle. But you also want to do it yourself. You don't just look up the answer from someone that already knows it, right? Because the point is to be engaged in the process. So that's, that is the same claim that uh, my claim is like, that's true of many games. Mm -hmm. And it's also true of art appreciation. It explains why, even if you can be right or wrong, if there are objective, if there are possible objective answers, if there's a possibility of genuine expertise, we still don't want to defer to experts. It's because the purpose of that struggle to get things right is to be in the
0: struggle for yourself hmm. no i i like that idea and i see immediately where that leads to questions of uh personal agency and free will and i think we'll get to those more but but the interesting question for me
1: i want your read on this okay. is whether philosophy is like that i mean i think it's probably going to vary but do you think philosophy, you, we can ask this for you. Like, do you think philosophy is a thing that you do to have the right answers or a thing you do for the joy of the struggle and process?
0: No, that that is, that's a good question. It's, huh. I really, I really enjoy. So I there are certain aspects of philosophy that I really enjoy. I really enjoy research. I really enjoy reading papers and stuff, but writing papers I find to be, very challenging. And I'm not sure I mean, so I feel a lot of satisfaction when I finish writing a paper, but at least at the conscious level, I don't feel like that's what's driving my pursuit. But it might be just something that I'm not so much aware of. But you seem to have a great facility for writing, right? I I mean, I I mean, you you write a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I also really enjoy The writing part. I I think different people enjoy different parts more. I really like the writing part. The lit review part is painful.
0: Uh, Um, Ah, yes,
1: it's the opposite for me. Yeah, yeah. So I think different part people like different parts. But I think there's also, I mean, there's there's a pot there's an in between thing here where I think. Um. So in the game stuff, uh, in the in the games work, the the uh, do you say the games war? Work. Oh work. Stop. Okay. The game the game's book. In the book, yeah. Um one of the distinctions I offer is something like, uh, there are two motivations for playing a game. One is an achievement motivation, you actually care about winning, and the other is a striving motivation, which is you don't really care about winning, uh, but what you care about is having the struggle. But the truth is for most of us, I mean that's a conceptual distinction. Most of us can be somewhere in between, right? We can have some mixture. I think a lot of the times what you find are people who are engaged in something as a kind of compromise between achievement and striving, right? Like I think with games, we can just pick, oh my God, here's the thing I love, right? But with other activities like our jobs, I think we often make this compromise where we're like, look, I'm going to find something where I can not die of starvation and have health insurance. And then of the available options, I'm going to find the one that gives me the most striving joy. And that might not be that every inch of it gives me the striving joy. But I mean, I, I suspect, for at least for me, that's why I'm in philosophy, right? There are lots of things I could do that would permit me to support my family. There are variable amounts of striving joy. There are, imagin- a lot, there are imaginable utopias where I could have nothing but striving joy, but that's not on the table now, right? Mm-hmm. The best I can get is the job I have which is
0: half misery and half great. Good compromise if you get the half great part. But so you clearly find games to be a very valuable form of art and a valuable, I mean, tool in philosophy and just thing to philosophize about generally. But the narrative in popular culture, I mean, it seems to be more, at this point centered around video games, but it's that video games in general are a waste of time and like TV, they sort of rot your brain. And I don't think anybody would, even people who hold this view, uh, would doubt that you can win a game, but they'd say the achievement is sort of vapid. And they'd also say, sure, games can be difficult and you have to strive to complete them. But when you do, I mean, so what you haven't uh, cured cancer or gotten a paycheck or anything like that. So where did popular culture go wrong with all of this? Right. I, uh, that is a great question, by the way. I mean, I think there's an
1: interesting, uh, so this exposes an interesting difference between two approaches you can have with games. So my approach with games is to say, look, a lot of the value, not all of the possible value, but a lot of the value, is in these aesthetic qualities in the struggle. The struggle can be beautiful, harmonious, or interesting to you. Um, There's another Hmm. branch of people working in philosophy of games, most famously Thomas Herka, and then Thomas Herka's kind of protege, Gwen Bradford, who is my friend slash nemesis, and there's this lovely book called Achievement. Both of them basically think something like, games are valuable insofar as they support achievements and achievements are valuable insofar as they're difficult. But that leads to a really clear puzzle for game players and Herka says this very clear very clearly. It's like look, if there are two difficult acts, one of which is playing a game and the other of which is curing cancer, playing a game is difficult and gives you nothing good out of it. Curing cancer is difficult and it gives you something good out of it. And so you should just cure cancer. Like it's really hard to explain why under, I think, a difficulty achievement model, it turns out to be really hard to explain why games are valuable. um, Because there are difficult things and achievements that are also instrumentally useful in a world that's really crap. I think one of the valuable things about the kind of aesthetic explanation is it can show us why games, as with other art forms, can be valuable even if they don't offer kind of instrumentally useful outcomes. And that's because they can offer experiences of beauty that we can't get elsewhere because games can offer us these tuned experiences of action i think i've never felt more elegance in me than rock climbing i've never felt more brilliant than playing go right the way that games can manipulate the the playing environment offers these these extraordinarily crystalline experiences of acting beautifully and this actually helps me give me give the diagnosis so Basically, I think one of the big differences between games and a lot of traditional artworks is in a lot of traditional artworks, an artist makes a thing, and then the aesthetic qualities are in the made thing. Like, it's the painting that is beautiful. It is the novel that is tense. Um, It's the movie that's bittersweetly comic. Uh, I think games are different because in games, the artist makes a thing, the game, and then you, the player, interact with the thing, And then it's you that is beautiful. It's you that's like making these interesting actions or these incredibly elegant maneuvers. Um, And I think a lot of people, I think in popular culture and the analysis of games don't see that. And they try to locate the beautiful thing in the game itself. They look for fixed qualities in the program or the graphics or the story. And it's often, that's not where the heart of game playing is. I think if you listen to game players and game designers, they're very frank like the the thing that's interesting is the decisions and the actions that the player has to take which has been shaped by the game and behind the game the game designers um, so here are two diagnoses of why people miss it one um, in games people look at the outcome rather than the process they look at the value of the points rather than the value of the struggle and i think if you really buy my kind of picture of games then in many games the points aren't valuable in and of themselves they just are there to create this incredibly interesting rich process of action so if we look in the wrong place if we look at the points rather than the struggle then we won't get the right thing and similarly if we try to look at the object rather than the player for the beauty we won't find a lot of the most important aesthetic qualities on offer so i think we're stuck in a kind of outcomes oriented paradigm and a kind of fixed art object oriented paradigm. And when you shift to looking in the playing process, then I think you see most of the valuable stuff. And that's not not on the radar for a lot of pop cultural analysis, I think because of kind of older paradigms of art.
0: Got it, so pop culture is too outcome oriented rather than uh, struggle and beauty oriented. I see. But, so there are obviously plenty of interesting philosophical directions we could go right now, but maybe the most important one at the moment is you, you said rock climbing is a game and okay. rock climbing. I mean, at dinner, when we went to dinner and I saw your forearms, I knew immediately that you were a rock, <laughs> rock climber. Uh, but. I'm surprised there's, I still have, I bear, I mean, I have young kids now,
1: like my climbing is mm-hmm. diminished to a, I haven't climbed much for like three or four years. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm shocked that it's still visible.
0: I actually, st- so I had taken a few years off and started again after dinner and uh, after we had dinner and I've been going once a week, just bouldering, which, yeah. you know, it's funny. I was going, what I was going to ask is why do you consider rock climbing a game? Because that's not what I would have uh, thought, but I guess it, I mean, it does feel like a puzzle, in a sense. But so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask how we so, how we are defining games. Um, so I'm general. using Bernard Suits' definition,
1: he and I don't him, think, sorry? by the way, this is Bernard Suits. Okay, he wrote he wrote the book of The Grasshopper. This is kind of the foundational text for me. Like all of the analysis I give is based on Suits. I think Suits offers a really interesting account. So there's a he gives us a simple portable version and a full version. The simple portable version is playing a game is voluntarily taking on unnecessary obstacles for the sake of making possible the activity of struggling to overcome them. So one Hmm. way to put it is that you, you take a goal and you pick up obstacles for that goal that you don't need. Um, and then you do it to create a new kind of struggle. Um, So there's something about the value. uh, I mean, one way to put the account is something like, look, uh, one way he puts it is if you look at any game and you look at the end point of the game, there's always a shortcut or a more efficient path you could have taken there. And you can see the game because it doesn't count as doing the thing if you take the shortcut. You have to go, I mean, he sometimes says, you have to take this like specified inefficient path. So for example, you run a marathon, here are things you don't do. You don't take a cab, you don't take a scooter, you don't cut off path. Um, Playing basketball, trying to get the ball through the hoop are some things you don't do. You don't take a stepladder, right? You don't uh, use a a long stick to lift the ball, right? You take on various restrictions, like the dribbling rule, no stepladders, opponent, in order to create this new kind of activity. And rock climbing, I think, is really similar. You could walk up the easy part in the back. If you're talking about like Yosemite, you could take a shuttle up the back. Uh, with you could uh, you could haul on the rope to go up. Well, we don't do these things. We take restrictions specifically because those restrictions sculpt a particular kind of activity we find valuable. Specifically, like if you don't haul on the rope and you don't and you force yourself to go up the difficult way using only your hands and feet engaged with the rock and no gear, then you create this activity of very precise, careful, powerful, balanced, delicate movement. And you don't get that unless you add all these constraints in.
0: An immediate sort of counterexample to this, uh, this definition that you just mentioned, Ed, maybe I'm totally wrong, but some games, like some of my favorite childhood games, like uh, Candyland comes to mind, uh, and then War with Cards, They, there is no struggle involved. I mean, it's just a rolling of the dice or a draw of the card. You don't even need agents involved to play the game. Right. So how do those fit into this definition? Right. So the notion of struggle,
1: by the way, is not in the formal definition. It's in his easy, quick version. One one way to put it is that what he means is any kind of activity. Like a struggle is any attempt to do anything that um, is resisted in some way. And I think if you're trying to go to Candyland, you could just pick up your piece and put it on the final thing, but you have to do it by a particular method. So... Maybe it doesn't feel like a struggle to you because you don't have a lot of actions to take, but it, there is impeded progress. Um, the The full de- His full definition is... His full definition is... This is the definition of record. Is that a game has something called a prelusory goal, which is a state that you're trying to achieve. And there has constitutive rules, which put on restrictions, which put restrictions on how t- you can do that. There... That creates, um, uh, you put those together and you get the losory goal. So the losory goal is the pre lusory goal as achieved within the, con- the constitutive constraint. So for example, the pre-losery goal of basketball is to get the ball through the hoop. The constraints are dribbling rule, no stepladders, etc., the losery goal is making a basket, which is what happens when you pass the ball through the hoop while following all the other rules, right? Notice that it doesn't count. If you move the ball through the hoop while you're on a stepladder, ladder. It doesn't count as making a basket. And the final constraint is um, that you take on the pre-losery goal and the constitutive rules in order to make possible the activity of attempting to get the pre lusory sorry, the losery goal. So it, it creates, I think that the, the thing that's interesting to pursuits is not that it's difficult or a, a struggle is just kind of shorthand. The thing that's interesting to suit is I think that it's an activity and a goal that's conceptually constituted by its relationship to constraints, right? It doesn't count as doing the thing unless you're doing the thing inside of certain constraints. Um, uh, he has an example about how two mountain climbers are trying to get to the top of a mountain. One of them is doing it as a, you know, mountain climber. And the other is doing it as a practical activity because there's like some treasure at the top. And he, he, he basically like, imagine someone comes by in a helicopter and they say, do you want to lift to the top? The person that w- wants the treasure would say, yes, because all they want to be at the, is at the top. And has no particular relationship to constraints. The like pro mountain climber would say no, right? Cause it wouldn't count as that activity unless you did it with your own hands and feet,
0: avoiding helicopters. So this this is philosophy. So I guess we can define our terms however we want, but so it's, it's going to be inclusive enough now to, to encapsulate or to account for candy land or war or mountain climbing. But is this wide of a definition really worth it when we're now sort of encapsulating so many things that we don't usually think of as games.
1: So I, I think this is not, this doesn't capture our natural language sense of games perfectly. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think it's a bit revisionary. Um, so he thought he was defining the natural language sense of game. Actually, the first thing I ever wrote in this space uh, was arguing against him. I, I actually, okay. so I think that he thinks that make kids, Structuralist make believe games can be fitted inside his account, and I think he's wrong. Um, As a whole, it's not that interesting, but whatever. I I think you naturally feel this. What I think is actually going on is he's identified a loose concept, he's identified an important category of human activity. He's drawn a clear line around it, and we can analyze it, and we can talk about its value, we can talk about how it can be shaped, and it's pretty close to our natural language notion of game, but it's, it's very, I mean, in some sense, I don't care if we match the natural language no- notion. What I care about is that he has sculpted out and clearly identified a very specific subset of human activity that has particular value features um, and can be, and it's up for a certain kind of design. Um, and we can talk about it. And when we see, that. The interesting thing for me is not have we gotten the notion of a game, but you can see uh, the natural language notion of a game, but you can see this relationship between video games and cards and sports um, uh, that exposes the motivational structure for doing them. And I, I mean, I just don't hear it as that strange to say that rock climbing is a game. Like when you tell people, like no, when I'm like rock climbing, you know, rock climbing is a game. I'm trying to, you know, hit this goal for the struggle people, people know what I mean. It's I don't think that's as much of a stretch, but I don't, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't really care if it's exact to our natural language.
0: No, that, yeah, that, that is totally fair. I had a sort of a similar concern when I was reading uh, your paper, the arts of action. Because when you you write that, when we think of art, we tend to think of art objects. So maybe paintings or sculptures, uh, I mean, or maybe even pieces of music. But then you also believe that video games, food rituals, rock climbing are also arts. And I was wondering if that... So, well, they're they arts of action as opposed to being arts of objects, and I was wondering if that sort of expands or inflates our definition of art to encompass again too many things. Or, but so how do we? How would you then integrate all of these things into a sort of one conceptual category? I mean, the first thing I have to say is I think
1: the defining art is probably one of the most boring questions in philosophy. I okay. I now refuse to start my classes that way um i i I probably like probably if you push me i would say it's like some kind of loose cluster account with like a vague set of family or whatever um so i can tell you exactly what the similarity is and exactly what the difference is and then that's and then whether you want to call it art whatever um okay the the similarity is that paintings and novels and games and food are things that someone has created intentionally to create a particular aesthetic effect and where, when it succeeds, audience members can have an aesthetic experience, which they attribute to the original creator or creators, right? Like um, someone made this painting. I find it moody and deep. It's because of Rembrandt, right? Minor Knitia made this board game. Every time I play it, I feel this extraordinary, elegant set of calculations. It's because Knitia did it. So they're designed artifacts with, that offer us created, shaped aesthetic experiences. That's, that's the thing I mean. And then there's a big difference. In some of these, the aesthetic properties lie kind of in this shared external object, be it a movie or a live musical performance or a painting or a performance artwork. It's something that we observe from the outside as audience members where this other category includes games and dancing. Someone's designed to process and then we interact with it. And then we get an aesthetic quality that was designed in our own selves. Right. So there's the difference at this point. I'm willing to say, like, if you want to call it art, fine. If you don't want to call it art, call it, I don't know, art B. I don't give a shit, right? You mm-hmm. can. The, the name isn't that important because I think the natural language thing is kind of fuzzy. I Here's one thing to say. I don't have a better term. Like, here's the category. Games. Someone carefully made it manipulating, um, manipulating uh, features of a particular... Uh, medium for aesthetic effect with great delicacy. What other word do we have for that? All right, art's the closest I got. Though there's one backwards way you can do it. So here's here's this is something I thought of since the book. Maybe you'll find this interesting. So one of the one of the things that people think thinks differentiates art from non arts is that people are interested in the details of the the use of the medium to achieve the aesthetic effect, right? So like... um, Okay. Like, in some sense, when I, as a user of antibiotics, I don't care how it was made, I just care that it works, right? Yeah, yeah. But if I love a movie, I'm I'm very interested in how the cutting and the acting contributed to the aesthetic effect. I care about and can attend to and be interested in The medium, right? In some sense, like the use of the particular details of the artistic media. Amusingly, one of the the most interesting places this comes out is in the debate about art versus porn. There's this great debate in philosophy of art. Um, And it starts because, so there's a kind of 70s move that says that what makes porn porn is that it's objectifying or misogynist. Um, And Anne Eaton has this wonderful piece that totally changed my mind on this. Anne Eaton is this kind of like major figure in aesthetics and feminist aesthetics. And what she argues is that, um, well, that can't be right because there's plenty of things that we take to be art that are also misogynist and objectifying. There's like a billion completely misogynist, obvious artworks. The difference has to be something else. So what is the difference? And a way that a lot of people have put it is that this might be kind of gross, but what they say is. People who use porn just want the porn to stimulate a certain effect and they don't care how the porn did it. They don't care about the technique or the use of the medium, right? But with art, we care about how the technique and the use of the medium led to that effect. I think with games, it's really clear when you appreciate a game, you often care about how, I mean... I'm playing Mario with my kids right now. And if you look at Mario criticism, a lot of it's like, oh, it's so tasty because of the way they set the physics. So it's just a little bit slidey. And, you know, you can feel a little bit of the friction and like, so what's going on in game criticism is that people are talking about how manipulation of the rules, the virtual world, right? The obstacles creates a particular kind of aesthetic effect. And you'd see this in like rock climbing gyms, like, think you know that certain setters people setters are people that create rock climbing problems Mm -hmm. some setters just create these kind of like ugly problems that force you to do some gross throws and other ones like you can see how they sequence the holds so that to do that you have to do this like delicate interesting movement and you can see how they use the medium to get the effect Mm -hmm. so that's that that's the lot that isn't in the book because that came out of a exchange I had with someone after the book. But I, I think the, the interesting idea for me is that the fact that we admire the use of the medium is one of the distinctive features of art. Hmm.
0: I actually, I saw that you wrote an article for the New York Times about uh, why we call certain things porn. So it's funny that right. that porn comes up. I was curious because what of is your... It? What is interesting? <laughs> yeah, no, I've had a... a <laughs> Any category, just, go
1: that, ahead. sorry. <laughs> any category that we reach for so much, I think we care we use the term porn because it's capturing something that we don't have a good other term for. And when like I think when people I mean this is so in my intro class, I teach um Aaron James' analysis of asshole and Frankfurt's analysis of bullshit. Partially because I think when we when when there's this colloquial slang term that we reach for because we have, like, because it seems so exactly right, that reveals something. It reviews that there's been a lacuna in the conceptual
0: landscape. Yeah. And then uh, we need, this thing fills it. And what do you think? So, why the thing that comes to mind when talking to you is what lacuna did food porn fill for
1: us? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, food porn is part of a larger. So I think it describes a political relationship. So the thing you're talking about, that New York Times op-ed was just a condensation of a longer piece I wrote with Becca Williams. So Becca Williams and I, this article, it's called Moral Outrage Porn. It actually started um, uh, as a drunk Facebook conversation. And by the end of it, we were like, oh, my God, we should write this as a paper. And it was about, like, you know, a lot of people define... As all good papers start. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, A lot of people define have offered us definitions of like traditional sexual pornography, but there's this new use that we all know, food porn, real estate porn, right? Clothing porn, closet porn. Everyone seems to use and we know what it means, right? But there's no good definition for it. And you can like, you can see how clear it is because uh, someone will come up with a new use and everyone knows what it means. Like we were in the middle of writing this paper and Becca texted me, she was like, oh my God. So it was, this was like, I think it was like, the end of year one of the Trump presidency and some Saturday Night Live comic was like, man, I'm tired of all this impeachment porn. And I was like, (laughs) I know what that means. I know what that means, right? Um, So we ended up uh, adapting this definition from Michael Ray about sexual pornography. So Michael Ray's definition. So I'm not sure if this is right for sexual pornography, but his definition is that sexual pornography is representations of sexual activity used for immediate gratification while not, and not part of developing a deeper romantic relationship. So what Ray was really interested in was that, you know, a couple who were in love could exchange naked photos. And that's not porn. That's something else, right? So it's very, yeah. huh. he thought it was super interestingly contextual. And the, the, the core is like this like, this kind of like, skipping of this like bigger thing. So we generalized it. So what we said was that for all X, X porn is representations of X used for immediate gratification while avoiding the costs and consequences of entanglement with the real thing. Like food porn is. Yeah. Representations of food used for gratification without having to buy it or deal with the calories and nutrition. And exactly. Our, our real, that's perfect. Part of it was to introduce like moral outrage porn, which is, you know, representations of moral outrage that you use to like morally get off while avoiding actually doing anything. Um, And I think it's, it's like, that's the lacuna. Like there's this, I, I do feel like there's something about the modern world that's making, that's increasingly offering us these opportunities for immediate gratification while avoiding complex. It's, I mean, everyone will need to be like social media, whatever, right. And I think like that's become such a thing that we need a term for it. And porn is the term we all
0: jumped on. Mm-hmm. No. And, and your definition uh, rings so true to my ears, particularly because uh, I was on a, a stringent diet like uh, a year ago or so. And I found myself watching these like p- videos of people binging on YouTube in <laughs> an almost like pornographic way. Like I was, I was obsessed with it and it was because I. I had to get my fix without like engaging in the actual thing. So, yeah,
1: hmm. I mean, this is, I'll, I mean, I, I have this. So I don't, by the way, we don't think that all porns are bad. Right.
0: Um, Right. I was actually going to get into
1: that. Yeah. Moral outrage porn is bad specifically because it avoids actual moral engagement. I I just want to, there's a caveat. We put this in the paper, but I wish we'd put it in bold because this is the thing that most people miss out. When you say that moral outrage porn, you're not saying that moral, sorry, when you say that moral outrage porn is bad, you're not saying that moral outrage is bad. (laughs) In the same way that if you say that sexual pornography is bad, you're not saying that sex is bad. In fact, probably what you think is sex is special and the pornography undermines it if you happen to think that. And I think this is like, people keep wanting to use our stuff to be like, oh, you know, people should stop being so angry and everyone should be civil. And we're like, no, the point is the genuine moral outrage is one of the most important drivers of political action. And moral outrage porn is when you sit in your ass and feel the feelings and don't do anything. And don't try to... And where doing something counts as either actually acting or working hard to refine your moral views. Instead, you just sit there and just like... So, but... The, the, I, I was just gonna say, like, I, I feel this too. And I, one of the ways that I got through the pandemic, um, especially when we couldn't go to climbing gyms in the winter, uh, because COVID, um, I picked up fly fishing and fly fishing mm. turned out to be this like incredibly aesthetically rich activity that also like eased my burnout and stress mostly. Cause it's like standing in a river, staring at the surface of water for hours, which is, I think the opposite of zoom and the opposite of a research life. Um, But it's definitely clear that when I don't have enough time and I can't get out, I'll like just sit there watching fly fishing videos, like salivating and like trying to get
0: like a glimmer of that feeling. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So talking about um, good porn and bad porn and good art and bad art. Well, or at least the use of the meat of the medium in those things I had I've actually had two conversations with Ricky Heck uh, at Brown on the philosophy of pornography on the podcast. And they pointed me in the direction of feminist pornography as something that uh, well, a lot of the directors try to make good porn as opposed to bad porn by effectively using the medium well, and paying attention to storytelling to right to filmography. I don't know if filmography is the right word, Uh, cinematography. Yeah, that's the one I'm looking for. I was wondering if that is the way also that you or at least one one way by which you distinguish good games and bad games, Uh, a good game is one that effectively uses the tools of the medium
1: yeah i don't i don't even know like i don't so i don't have any general account of what makes a game good or bad like i'm a radical pluralist about it i also don't have any general i mean i think a lot of people look for a general account of the value of art i just don't think there is one i think some art is good because it's kind of abstractly beautiful some art is good because it conveys moral understanding of people some art is good because it's like like i just think there's a huge val like a huge variety of values so i mean i guess uses the medium well is close enough to does a good job at whatever it's doing that i would say yes um since like what it is to be good as an art is to use its medium well i guess then then sure but i i mean there's a billion ways you can use that. You can use it to tell a story. You can use it to give people fascinating action. You can use it to create emergent social interactions. So, I mean, the, the, but, but I, I, guess we could say yes to your proposed version because yeah, all goodnesses of art are goodnesses of using the medium just cause that's what art is.
0: Okay, so does your being, um, a, a radical pluralist then about about this issue uh, mean that there you don't think that there are any bad games no <laughs> okay so what makes it, what are some bad games and maybe why are they bad oh my
1: god because
0: uh, uh, i remember <laughs> i asked you i asked you at dinner if you played halo and you were i think almost appalled by the question halo yeah, well maybe it wasn't Halo or maybe it was Battle. I was asking no. you if you played any of these big games and you told me you just you didn't play those in the same way that maybe you didn't like the big Marvel movies. Um the corporate um, the corporate games.
1: Yeah, I so there's there's some specifics. so um the the first place I was going to go with a terrible
0: game is Cards Against Humanity, but in most cases like I oh, think Oh, really? Almost like... That's so popular. I've never played it, but that's so popular. Maybe we should yeah. talk about that first. Right.
1: Um, Well, I mean, I I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's a general account of what makes a game bad. Just like, is there a general account of what makes a movie bad? No. Some movies try to be funny and fail. Some movies are just boring. Some movies are wildly ambitious. But like, there's like,
0: I I, I see where I was wrong. right,
1: Right. Like, so I mean, I can like some. I think some games are. Good, but incredibly unoriginal, and just copy some mechanics, and they don't go well together. Some games are kind of awkward. I mean, they're and game. So, but things that can make a game pro- that can make a game not great. There are a few things that are, that are unique and interesting uh, to games that are separate from the other spaces, and a lot of it has to do with like, uh, especially in the board game space, um, emergent activity. So, I think there, in particular, uh, there are a lot of games right now where the first play is really fun but it's quite scripted and after a few plays the game becomes solved and you know exactly what to do and there's no interesting decisions at all. So that's 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 you know a relatively common game fault. But there's not for me like a general picture of what makes a game bad. One thing I do think though is that um So there was one of the reasons I started writing the stuff I was writing was so this isn't exactly about badness, but I kept playing these games uh, that were kind of AAA big mainstream games, and they would get very praised. And the thing they would get praised for was their cinematic qualities, their cutscenes, the stuff that made them look like movies. And in many of the games that I played back in the day, to get those cutscenes and to get that script scriptedness, you had to like reduce player freedom, um, and. The games didn't do the special thing that games did like the games to me that are the most amazing are ones that are the that are most amazing as games or where the goodness kind of just emerges spontaneously out of an interaction of the rules, the environment and the players. And it's like, right. Uh, coming out of action in relationship to the environment or the rules.
0: Um Game, Are you a particular the, fan a lot of, of like StarCraft, those sorts of games? Um,
1: oh, god! Um, I mean, I like them. I don't think I'm particularly okay. deeply into them because those
0: seem to be like uh, the the epitome of this. Uh, you have just some really? simple rules, no story, but the games oh, right, and yeah. the strategies just can, com- and it's all about the interaction between you, your opponent, right. and your teammates.
1: Yep. Yeah. No. I think that's. I think those games are really interesting to me as games. And the kind of game that sacrifices its, like, emergent gameness to look more like a movie. Hmm. I think those I often... uh, It feels a little cheap to me. Okay. You're you're grabbing stuff that, that games aren't good at and, like, shoehorning moviness into it. I mean, it's fine. Like, such games can be really good. I've enjoyed many such games, but also, um, you know, um, but uh,
0: yeah. Why do you think that we have, um, like, uh, this, hi- there's like a social high? Well, I don't know if social is the right word. But we have at least like a cultural hierarchy of games where um like chess is probably at the top of all of our games whereas i mean starcraft which i just mentioned even though it is like it's certainly more complicated than chess but pop culture then is going to think of it as a waste of time and then uh yeah how do you I, think wait,
1: is i actually don't know if it's more complicated than chess but that's that's okay that's a but i think because there are
0: so many moving variables. Um, but i guess yeah you have the,
1: enormously strategically like go is like an enormously right. strategically complex game the number of I mean, it, it'll depend on how you call a variable like i I'm, I'm, so i'm not i'm not sure there i'm not sure which is more complex i mean some of it's just like tradition and association one interesting thing i think about games like uh chess and go is uh i have a little about this in my book but um i think A lot of the times, what makes a game really interesting is its strategic depth, and its strategic depth can take generations to explore, right? Like we've been exploring chess for I don't like a millennia, right? And it keeps. We've been exploring Go for like two millennia, and it keeps getting deeper. Um, And games can bottom out, so games that at some stage looked interesting can over the centuries get solved. Like, so checkers is like this. Checkers used to be much more exciting and checkers seems to be completely solved now. Like high level checkers play is identical. And I think the last time they tried to hold a high end checkers tournament, um, the two finalists played to a draw like 63 times in a row until one of them just got bored and did a random move in the beginning and then lost. So checkers to solved, but it took centuries to figure that out. So one of the things, I mean, one of the, one of the things I think we see over history is that these games develop and then people work on them and explore their strategic space. And some of them keep getting more and more interest. I mean, you can, so you can see it's, I think it's interesting. So you can see this with like board games and like, especially multiplayer video games where some people play for a while and then they kind of get solved And then they pass out of play and other ones people just keep working on over years and years and they just keep there i was watching this like there's this abstract world of connection games uh where you're trying to like connect different sides of a board and people propose different rule sets and playing them and some of them after five years turn out to be not that interesting and others like uh you should uh look up a game called havana um it's been building for like, oh, sorry, you look up a game called Hex, which is very, very simple, Hex. but um, it turns out people, I think people have been playing it for 50 years now and it keeps getting more complicated and interesting. So the whole point is, we don't know about StarCraft. It's still experiencing heavy play. People are still interested in it. It'll be really interesting to find out whether um, it survives 100 years or 200 years if people keep finding in it, things in it. Um, chess i think has a certain weight just because we know and i think this is very special in games that the strategic space has continued to develop
0: for so long and we keep finding new things in it so okay one la- one last games question and then we'll we'll move on to something else but what are your some of your all-time favorite games uh, there's um, so i mean can you narrow it down to a few?
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, in the classics, I love Go. I used to be a chess player, and now I've become a deep Go player. Um, I mean, rock climbing to me is one of the great games. Uh, board games. There's so many interesting board games. I play a lot of Scrabble. I play a lot of Scrabble?
0: Have,
1: yeah. have you played many A uh, Reiner Knittias games? I don't know who that is. Try... Modern Art, Raw, Tigris and Euphrates. He has so many great ones it's hard to
0: pick one. They're
1: board games? But they're these, yeah, actually, hold on. Can you pause for a moment? There's someone
0: at my door. Yeah, sure. And I'm curious right. about some of your favorite video games uh, because my oh, favorites... favorite video games. Yeah, my favorites have been um, uh, the ones that have like the most nostalgic value for me. So uh, playing Warcraft three as like a middle schooler all night long um halo pokemon games so they're probably well maybe i'm wrong but i i doubt that those are uh your favorites as far as their aesthetic values go um maybe they had a story why importance. i mean uh i'm not i mean why would you doubt their aesthetic value um well because warcraft 3 and starcraft for instance are pretty similar you know maybe maybe pokemon you would yeah. i would guess you might be more favorable to just because that that Wait, seems why? like a, i'm interested more favorable to it yeah, because... well, why do you
1: think i'm not i wouldn't be favorable to uh to like
0: warcraft or starcraft well we talked about we talked about starcraft i thought you said it was too cinematic
1: no i mean they're cinematic
0: parts but serious players just ignore that stuff okay then maybe the... maybe i misunderstood what you were saying before then
1: I mean, StarCraft seems like a really deeply interesting game that has a massive player community. But I mean, one thing we know about the massive player community is they ignore the cinematics, they ignore the they ignore the story. They're playing Star. I mean, I'm talking about like pro level StarCraft two mm-hmm. right? They're playing this really rich, complicated game that I can, far as I can tell, is like super. I mean, I I'm not gonna comment on uh, much about it because I'm shit at it. Like, I never mm-hmm. took the time to get good at starcraft but,
0: uh, but what are some of your favorites uh it, I mean, you play more small indie video games right
1: yeah so we you can separate there are the old kinds of games i used to play when i had time as a kid uh as a younger person and some of them i'm not allowed to touch anymore like anything in the civilization series i played the old your life classic oh my god I think I lost a research summer to one of the civilizations, and then I swore never to have it in the house again. Um, the There, the, there are a few indie games right now that I really enjoy. The last in two games I loved, uh, video games I loved. One is Baba Is You, which is this incredibly um, difficult logic puzzler in which you. Ch- move blocks around to solve block moving puzzles, but as you do so, you change the rules of physics in the game because the laws of physics are written physically as blocks into the levels. And when you push them around and change the wording, you change how the physics works and it's completely mind-bending. I have a new game I'm com- I've been obsessed with now uh, called Spider Heck, which is a Spider uh, heck. multiplayer brawler. I think it's on Switch and PlayStation. Like a, um, in which you play little jumpy wall crawling spiders that can shoot webs and spin around and pick up guns and most importantly can pick up lightsabers and then like lightsaber most duel and reflect bullets back. But it's like this very pure, very precise physics, incredibly interesting emergent action, very fast, very strategic game. But like I, I've been. In right now, so I think different game parts of the game world have different explosions. Like, in the 90s and early aughts, I felt there was this massive board game explosion that was just so rich and so amazing. And then it kind of... At the moment, there's some new designs that are very exciting, but that field for the moment seems to be like rehashing old mechanics. A lot of computer games, and I still play a decent number, computer games and video games, I keep feeling like I see mechanics I've seen before made more elaborate. Like, um, But the world that's the most exciting to me right now is the indie tabletop role-playing world that are just generating these extraordinarily inventive, wild, thoughtful designs with mechanics I've never seen before. So games like Apocalypse World, Monster Hearts, The Quiet Year, Uh, blades in the dark that have so the quiet year is a collective storytelling map making game where you play the forces around a community in the apocalypse and as you figure out what happens and give them struggles you draw events onto a map so you end up having made a map at the end or um blades in the dark which is a tabletop role-playing game where you play like cons in a magical world and the main mechanic is that Your characters have planned for the break-in you're doing, but you, the players, have not. So you don't know how your character's planned. And as you're doing your job, like breaking into the wizard's vault, um, and you run into obstacles, you spend your stamina points to have flashbacks and retroactively act out how you prepared for this moment. So it like screws with the temporal relationship to narrative creation. So like, this is just like stuff I've never seen before. It's like
0: totally wild. This really strikes a chord in my fantasy nerd's heart. But I, one thing that has really struck me in this conversation, particularly with the, the two video games you mentioned, and then also playing Mario Kart with your kids, is how attentive you are to the physics of video games. And I imagine you could probably write a really good paper about game physics.
1: I I think less so just because, I mean, I'm attentive to it, but I'm just... I, I think I'm I'm less attentive to it only because I spent my youth doing turn-based strategy games, not platforming. I'm kind of late to physics-based games. Um, and the one truly uh, disabling feature for me is I am nauseated by any first-person game. So there's a oh. whole hmm. area of gaming that I just cannot explore uh, just for physical, like, I mean, something that's very slow, like Portal, where I'm not running around, and I can just stop. I can actually play through slowly. But, like, anything that involves running, jumping, shooting from the first person, after, like, five minutes, I'm puking. So, like, that's just, like, admission. I just don't know that stuff. Um, but I think this is one of those things. Okay, here's an analogy. A thing that deeply irritates me about pop culture criticism of music is that if you look at, like, sites like, I don't know, Pitchfork, they talk about music. And if you read their reviews, so many of their reviews sound like English majors acting as if the only thing in the music is the lyrics. All they do with the review is analyze the lyrics. Like they don't think about the music at all. And I think it's because they have the tools to analyze. There are a lot of people out there that have the tools to analyze words, but don't have the tools to analyze Mm -hmm. production, musical composition, the stuff that's. I mean, and I'm not saying the words aren't important, but there's a huge relationship. And I think similarly, when you see serious, especially the more you move up the cultural hierarchy to like fancy places, um, when they talk about games, they focus on the story, the dialogue, the characters, the graphics, the cinematography, the scoring, the stuff that we already have a language to talk about from film. The stuff people don't talk about is... How the rules create emergent interaction, how the rules create emergent decisions, the physics, right? Those are the things that shape the gameplay. And by mm. what I mean people don't talk about it, I mean – so what, the reason I wrote the book in part is because I had this love of games. And when I read academic work about it and pop cultural criticism about it, it was all stuff about the cinematic features. It was barely stuff about the gameness of games except for a little bunch of scholars in game studies who, are, who I think were on the right page. Then, if you look over in game reviews on like forums, you had people just try, like talking about how the physics made the movement interesting, or how this rule made these choices interesting. And if you look at game designer diaries, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about micro tweaking the physics, and micro tweaking like this. Or board game people talking about micro tweaking how the goals are set in order to like create more interesting decision spaces for people. And it, it was really striking to me that the designers and the players were talking about that. And then the academics and the people like the New Yorker were talking about completely different stuff that they had a theory for that they learned in their PhDs and like conflict or film theory or something. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, because I know that you uh, have to prepare for your, your meeting relatively soon. There are two sort of self-serving threads that I wanted to touch on. Uh, quickly. So the first is in your paper and the presentation you gave at Stanford on trust as an unquestioning attitude, where we're as non experts, and we talked about this, I, I guess, a bit in the beginning of our conversation, as non experts, we're in a very difficult epistemic state, when it comes to selecting the experts, um, whose testimony to rely on. So, yeah. and, and in some cases, like with um aesthetical judgments we don't really need to pay attention to them but i'm in a position where i have to select a guest to appear on my podcast and i would like to uh, move beyond just philosophy i've had some non-philosophers on the podcast but i'd like to go to other areas of academia as well and i'm wondering how you if philosophy gives us a way to sort of solve this puzzle or what the best practice you think as an epistemologist, I should take to select um, experts when I'm not in a position to right. determine whether or not they're experts or should be experts. You know,
1: it's kind of funny. I don't know if I believe this, but uh, one of, Elijah Milgram has this theory. So in his book, um, the great and darkenment, A philosophy for the age of hyper specialization, a book that really changed, how I think of a lot of things, he characterizes the epistemic problem of our era as being hyper-specialized domains um, that have to be linked up to make arguments, practical arguments, like any scientific inclusion runs through like 20 or 30 hyper-specialized domains, but they're also specialized that no one can understand all the parts. And he had this, in an optimistic moment, he was like, but you know who can help save the day? Philosophers. Because we have the conceptual training to help link up domains that use con- concepts slightly differently. I'm not, as optimistic as he is, though, I have noted that, that that a lot of the philosophy of science work that seems really valuable is people arguing, for example, that oh, you know, this discipline of biology and that discipline of biology are using slightly different definitions of species, and they haven't noticed, so they're like screwing things up, and we can fix this, and by writing a paper that no biologist will actually read because they don't read philosophers anyway. So, um, so uh, the so there's this general puzzle about how you identify interesting experts. Um, I mean, I don't, I have a, I have a kind of rough personal heuristic, but it's not very philosophical. It's just like whenever I run into someone who seems kind of interesting from another field, I just tell me things, ask them for things to read and people to follow from the current world. And I just like,
0: so you try to become become a a baby expert.
1: Yeah, you can, um, and you can just follow that out. Like if you ask one person and you meet another person, you ask them and each of them expands out. And that's how I've gotten to find incredibly interesting people from different fields to talk to. So that's,
0: that's the basic, the basic picture.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It depends on whether or not my sense of interestingness is correct. But Mm
0: -hmm. because I, one thing I don't want to do is just rely on sort of institutional affiliation as oh, yeah. like my only metric, because um, there are people at no name schools who are the, the best in their field and people right. at Harvard who um, got there because of uh, playing the politics game or something like that, yeah. and who aren't the best yeah. scholars.
1: Yeah, I think everything I know has de- basically depended on trusting people's taste over institutional judgments, like mm finding it is, oh, I mean, I think I have an almost standing policy that if I'm ever talking to someone from a different field who seems interesting, I immediately push them to tell me things to read and put it in my notebook.
0: Okay. And then the the last thing i wanted to get to was i saw just before we started and i didn't have a chance to read it that you wrote a manifesto on public philosophy which is what i now find myself engaged in so i just wanted yeah. to ask you uh what the the main ideas are because you've been in the public philosophy game for a much longer time than i have
1: i mean the main the main worry was something like So I think there's a huge place for public philosophy. There's a lot of things the world needs that philosophers are particularly good at doing. Conceptual clarification, like uh, accounts of value, accounts of ethics. Um, But there are a lot of barriers to philosophers actually doing public work. And I was really interested in what those barriers were. And I think there are a bunch of barriers, and a lot of them are institutional. Some of them are things like the fact that if you're trying to get tenure, academic publications count, but public publications don't. And I think a few places are trying to change this. And I think it's massive, because public work takes a huge amount of time. And if the only thing that counts for your tenure and promotion, I mean, this is the little nitty gritty institutional stuff. The only thing that helps you get a job is academic publications, then no one's going to spend time on that other stuff. So part of it has to be putting it, making it part of the institutional incentive. So other, some places are starting to do this already. Um, Another thing is, I mean, I think philosophers have been traditionally really crappy about this, right? Like, uh, you know, an experience I've had a number of times is writing some 800 word op-ed and then someone, a philosopher writing me this article about, you know, why I hadn't talked about the history of that idea and how it moved, you know, from Marx into Foucault and like this whole, and I'm like, I had 800 words Mm -hmm. to talk to a general audience, right? Like um, philosophers tend to be really aggressively nitpicky and, public work is in a different register and you have to accept this in yourself and in other people, which is not to say that public, public work can't be criticized. I think actually one of the most valuable and exciting thing that's going things that's going on right now for me watching public philosophy is in the wake of the crypto FTX kabloom, this huge conversation happening in public about effective altruism because, you know, like, so, um, so uh, and and the, and I think this is being done right. So the ba- the bad side of public philosophy, I think things have changed rapidly, but even a few years ago for me, if someone did public philosophy, it was it seemed very likely that someone another philosopher would come at them with a kind of incredibly scholarly fussy worry. Like, why didn't you cite this little thing that just didn't make sense in the 800-word op-ed format, yeah. the you know short public podcast format? But I think the thing that I was hoping would happen is happening more, which is philosophers are presenting in public clean versions of ideas, and other philosophers are replying to them in public in clean, publicly accessible versions of the ideas. So you actually have a debate. So it's not like, philosopher a does something in public philosopher b nitpicks on it as if it was a journal article it's more like philosophers presenting counter-argument in a way that can be understood criticizing in clear ways the deep roots and i think like one of my favorite things going on right now is various critics like um like william mccaskill wrote his effective altruism book about long-termism which is paying deep attention to the future and then people like karen satia and amin astro are writing criticisms of it not nitpicking but trying to get to the heart of the deep philosophical question in the public stage and that's the kind of thing i've been hoping for and is now starting to happen since i wrote that manifesto and i'm really excited about
0: yeah i'm i'm noticing in general philosophers appearing on in areas of media that i hadn't expected to see them on like in tv or podcast, uh, and and on big shows. And I really like to see that. Because I, I mean, I think people have an idea of philosophy, uh, as people in white robes talking about what is the meaning of life when they're actually these days talking about really important and socially practical and interesting ideas. But uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, This has been such a great conversation. I've been really excited to have it since I met you at Stanford uh, when you came and visited. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on.